From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, stories of family, connection, and empowerment, like the work of two college students behind a startup to preserve people's personal histories while empowering young women of color. Me wanting to resonate more with my own story and my own parents' story and my ancestors' stories and history made me think about how important it is for everybody to do that. Then, a unique father and son relationship formed in Colorado's great outdoors. Eric Rashke's novel is fiction, but the main characters are modeled on himself and his son, who's autistic. Jace taught Marshall how to survive outside in a huge snowstorm. Yes. What's something I've taught you? To always, um, to always make breakfast, probably. Make breakfast by yourself? Yeah. You can get out of bed and get yourself ready for school all by yourself now, can't you? Snap Judgment. Storytelling with the beat. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace. Welcome to Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedanta. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Today we're sharing stories of family, of connection, of empowerment. Mama Bird Interviews describes itself as a slingshot. It's a startup that helps people record their own histories. It also aims to economically empower the interviewers, so far all women of color, and launch them into their next jobs with more experience, skills, and money. Dan Clark teaches business at Northeast Early College in Denver's Montbello neighborhood. We spoke in March. He borrowed the idea for Mama Bird Interviews. The idea comes from my father, and he started it because he recorded his father, who had cancer, and passed away shortly after the recording. And because of him doing that, I'm able to watch and get to know my grandfather in a better way, um, who passed away when I was eight. And even more importantly than that, my kids will be able to get to know their heritage through these recordings. By the numbers, Montbello is a low-income neighborhood, and the majority of residents are people of color. Institutional inequalities have existed there for a long time, like lack of access to education, healthy food, stable jobs. Clark said he's seen his students struggle in college as a result. Teaching in high school, I saw these amazing kids come through our programs, graduate, go away to college, but not find success in college through different systemic issues. And it just broke my heart. And as I've become aware of my own privilege, once I became aware of that, I needed to do something about that to really do anti-racist work. Then the pandemic hit. My students are on the front line working frontline jobs that are often minimum wage. Their parents are often working frontline jobs that are also low paying. And seeing this disconnect as I sit here in my fancy house in the Central Park neighborhood. And so then I started to put together with this Zoom world we're living in, it makes it so easy to record conversations. And so I started seeing that as a a way that we could do these legacy and wisdom interviews. Clark launched Mama Bird interviews last summer with a combination of grants and personal savings. He co-owns it with a few of his former students. They're selling interviews recorded over Zoom to people who want to document different life events like weddings or retirement. And to folks like parents and grandparents who want to pass on their stories and advice. Many of the interviewers and paid interns are young people with roots in the Montbello neighborhood. So... They could get paid well for this time. It has an incredible value for now and for the future. 
The sustainable side looks like we charge $333 for these interviews. 200 of those dollars goes directly to the young woman who's doing the interview. And this is real money for part-time work. The young people that I've had the privilege to teach over the years will make great leaders in the future, and they will make the world better for all of us. And if we can get roadblocks out of the way for them, if we can empower them and encourage them, then they will make the world better for all of us. And so that's the world I want my kids to grow up in. The world I want to live in is a world where young people from marginalized communities are able to have power in the world and really, again, support their own communities, but also the rest of the world. Ariana Proctor and Yusura Ali have known Clark since he taught them film in middle school. Now Proctor is a sophomore at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she's studying journalism and media production. Ali is a junior at CU Denver. She's studying anthropology. They're co-owners of Mama Bird Interviews. Ariana, what about your work of preserving other people's stories energizes you? I think what energizes me is knowing that in the future, their children and grandchildren and any future family members will have the chance to have that extra time with the person that we're interviewing. And especially with this last year in November, my own grandma passed away and I wanted to do this interview with her, but I didn't get the chance to. And so I really see the importance of preserving these memories of people and learning from people in those ways and even allowing them to have that reflection A lot of the times before the interviews, people aren't the most excited because they're nervous of what it might look like or if they'll say the wrong thing. But after the interview, they're always so excited and glad. I'm sorry about your grandma. That's really good perspective, though. Yusura, what about for you? What energizes you? What energizes me is the benefits that we get as interviewers from listening to these stories. There's so much that you can learn from other people and... I've taken so much away from them. And I think I constantly grow from those interviews and I just become a whole better person. I recently interviewed my parents for a class assignment and, you know, I was blown away by everything they said in their life story. And I'm glad that I have that because we think we know the people, you know, are here, but there's some stuff that, you know, we don't always hear. Yeah. Let's listen to you in action. Ariana, this is part of an interview that you recorded with Brenda J. Allen, Professor Emerita at CU Denver's Department of Communication. What tips do you have for people to overcome obstacles in life because of their identity? I, I want to be careful here because I, I get concerned when people say things like, just work hard, because just working hard is no guarantee. So I don't want to say that even as I know it is important to work hard. Does that make sense? (laughs) I guess I want to say, regardless of the narrative about your identity, if there's something about your identity where there are especially negative and counterproductive narratives about fill in the blank, Black people this, Black women, or people who are, uh, you know, let's say a lesbian, blah, blah, poor people this, right? So there are these narratives swirling around implicit and explicit. I would say resist the negative narrative about who you are. I would also say try as much as you can to take initiative to create opportunities and also when opportunity knocks to open the door. Ariana, a lot of people have access to recording equipment on their phones and computers now, so they could record these stories and advice themselves. So what do you think is the value of recording a conversation like the one that you had with Brenda J. Allen instead? 
yeah, if someone prefers to do this themselves, it's definitely a doable thing. And we just think it's important to record their stories. But it's really beneficial to have someone that you're not maybe as close to to ask you these questions because I feel like it can take some of the nerves away, honestly. And Yusura, how do you think about that dynamic where you're the interviewer and how does that change the story that the interviewee is telling? I think you get more detail out of it when you know someone you might exclude because you already expect them to know. And also, it's just so exciting always meeting new people and talking to new people. I had a recent interview with this anthropology professor and at the moment I was going back and forth if I should switch my anthropology major and she just talking to her and how passionate she was about anthropology. She didn't know that I was considered changing my major, but that like had a big impact on me. The excitement that she got, we were able to bounce off of each other. So that's what I really love about this whole process. I love that. That's one of my favorite part of interviewing people too, is it's just a conversation and you get to learn so much. Um, Nusara, you interviewed a woman named Mirabel Sharika. What traditions would you like to pass on to your daughters? When I was growing up, my dad would tell me, if you want to do something in this life, do it very well or you don't do it at all. So that's what I always want to tell my daughters. If you want to do something, you do it very well or you don't do it. It's because it's it's... That spirit that I had that led me to where I am today, that spirit of determination, let the challenges not weigh you down. Be bent on the fact that you're going to achieve it and you will get there. That's very inspiring about your daughters look up to you. Um, talking about looking up, who do, who do you look up to? My mom, she's, she's been a tough lady. So looking at where we are today and how we are brought up, I look up a lot to her. Yeah, she's a source of inspiration. Yusura, what have people told you about the value they've found in the recorded interviews? I've been told um, a lot how excited they were um, about things they want to share onto their family and their, so those are some valuable, really valuable lessons. And the clip that you just played, she, the advice that she gave her daughters, it's also something I know I needed to hear um, and my team needed to hear. So most of the time we don't hear about our parents' stories and I know it's really meaningful. And these interviews are a little different from news interviews like the one we're doing right now. People are paying you to help them record their stories and their wisdom. How do you prepare for interviews with folks and decide what questions to ask or what topics to talk about? Ariana? Yeah, a big part of that is really working with a family member that might have purchased the interview or finding someone that is close in their life that we can get some advice from and ask them, like, what are some parts of their life that you feel like are important to document or some good questions that you think that um, would be good for us to ask? And I know that for one particular interview, it was very interesting because the lady that I was interviewing thought it would be a good idea to kind of separate it into different quarters of her life. And so we kind of went through different age brackets and I asked her questions that kind of associated with those years of her life. And so she was able to think about it chronologically. And so we definitely also work with the people we're interviewing to make them more comfortable. Mama Bird interviews, it was founded to help preserve people's stories. It's also founded to economically empower the interviewers. Ariana, can you tell me more about the business model? Yeah, and that's also what's so awesome about Mama Bird interviews is the fact that 
Um, it's 80% owned by young women of color. And so the money, most of it goes to the young women conducting the interview. A lot of us in our school that we went to or from our neighborhood went through a lot of hard things. And so it's hard to really see ourselves in those positions of power. But when we're getting to talk with people that uh, may live different lifestyles than us, getting to interview them and then receive some type of um, the money from the interview goes to us towards helping to support our future goals and our future dreams. Mental health care is another component that's actually built into Mama Bird. Interviewers have access to therapy through the Center for Trauma and Resilience. Yusura, why do you think that that's an important part of this work? Um, because first, being able to tell your story takes a lot of, you know, courage and, you know, and also listening to stories is takes a lot from people. Sometimes, you know, there are traumatic issues within our stories and having someone help you process those tra- um, trauma and help you work through those trauma is really important. So with Mama Bird, we we are ensuring that people have that, you know, that option when they work with us because we understand how important it is. Um, and we realize that from the beginning when we're telling stories is like mental health is really important and we need to make sure that everyone is covered. Yeah, I love that y'all are acknowledging that like telling people stories is a joy, but it also means that you absorb a lot of emotion. Ariana, how do you see caring for your mental health as an important part of being an effective storyteller? I think that like telling our stories has made us realize the importance of taking care of yourself and your mental health and in certain communities, um, like I know mine, it's like a taboo thing to talk about mental health. And it's seen as something that you shouldn't be talked about, like with my mom and her depression, but it can impact you in real ways and people in real ways. And so I think something that is important for people to know is that you can't help others unless you help yourself. And so a lot of my life, I've grown up wanting to always help other people, but not really wanting to listen to myself and what I need. And so really making sure that I'm considering my mental health and what it is that I need to do so that I can properly help other people and properly listen to other people, um, I think has helped with that because a big part of allowing people to tell their stories is being able to listen. I wanted to know why Yusura and Ariana joined on when their former teacher, Dan Clark, approached them with the idea last year. Yusura said it had a lot to do with this song from the musical Hamilton about, you know, Alexander Hamilton. His wife, Eliza, sings after he dies. I interview every soldier who fought by your side. I try to make sense of your thousands of pages of writings. You really do write, but you're running out of time. At the end of Hamilton, Eliza sings about um, telling her story. and She talks about telling um, Alexander's story. And then she asks, who's going to tell my story? So that's something I was thinking about. Like, no one could tell your story better than you can. And that's why I think it's so important. I love that. Um, Ariana, what about you? How did you get involved and how does it fit into your story? Yeah, I got involved also last year when we started Mama Bird. And so I had previously been connected with Clark and helping him with a lot of video work because I'm interested in that. And during COVID, I think it really inspired him and all of us to realize and think about how important it is to tell our stories, especially in a pandemic when so many people are losing family members. And so I think for me, why I resonated with the story of Mama Bird interview so much is growing up, I saw what it was like to have parents that have gone through a lot in life and how that has impacted me growing up and my own confidence as a person and not really completely understanding their stories. Um, And I never knew either of my grandfathers. And so I just have always been interested in learning about my own history as well and how that kind of trickles down into who I am now. 
I've always been scared to kind of talk to people about who I am and my past and things I've gone through. But it's so important because it's a part of who you are. And so me wanting to resonate more with my own story and my own parents' story and my ancestors' stories and history made me think about how important it is for everybody to do that. Yeah, both of my granddads died before I was born. It's one of those things that I didn't think about so much when I was little, but the older I get, the more I realize how much I'm missing not knowing their stories. Yusura, you said that you didn't see much representation of Black Muslim women in the media growing up. How is Mama Bird part of changing the larger cultural narratives about who tells stories and whose stories are told? Uh, when we first began this organization, Clark asked me, who are some of your you know, Muslim role models? Um, and I, like, I didn't even know where to start with that question because I like, had no idea of any. But we did an exercise where we started first to be accepting of our own stories. And since, you know, our big thing is stories and telling your story, we had to tell our own stories. And it was a bit hard for me telling my story about being Muslim and um, representation of being Muslim. And for a long time, I've kind of shied away, like was in a corner. It's like, no one wants to hear my story. Um, It's not that relevant. Let me just like get my work done. Um, But I've learned my story is important. And I've now, I'm now like reaching out to people and finding that there are like many African-American Muslim women in the United States who are doing great things. I connected with this woman at Howard and she's like 22 years old and she's in a doctorate program. and She's also a professor. So it's like there are so many amazing people out there with amazing stories that we don't hear about, but they are out there. And with Mama Bird, we are seeking to tell those diverse stories. I love the way you talk about how it's not just about saying the words or hearing the story. It's the real connections that you make because of it. Like stories have a real effect in the world. Ariana, what about you? How do you see Mama Bird changing the narrative about stories? Yeah, a big thing that I'm very interested in is media representation and who is in control of um, of stories that are being told and how that impacts society. And stories play a big part in the way that we all view each other and the way that we treat each other. If young women of color are able to take control of their representations in the media and show what it really means to be a young woman of color in the society, and so I think that's a big part of the impact it has is us being these young women of color talking to a lot of the people that we have been talking to are older white people, and so kind of crossing that divide and learning about each other in ways that we may not have been able to without Mama Bird interviews, I think it changes the narrative and um, allows us to have that compassion for each other and feel empowered in that way and change who is the ones, I guess, telling their stories and the ones the charge to learn from each other. Yusra, I love that you mentioned that you started learning how to tell stories at Mama Bird by telling your own story. Would you feel comfortable sharing that with me? Yes. Um, So I am an immigrant from Kenya, but my family is from Somalia. My parents fleed Somalia because there was a war. And um, my mom talked about how literally for like years she was living off of fish and water and constantly running away from, you know, different areas of Somalia. And then she met my father and they moved to Kenya where they got stepped into refugee camp. I was actually born in a refugee camp, um, which which is crazy. Um, But when I was six years old, we got approved to come to America. And from there, you know, the struggle between who I am, you know, the constant cultural, you know, differences 
um, because you know America is really about individualistic, and then my culture is all about like family and family first, um, and then of course the whole religion thing and navigating religion in high school, middle school. Um, there was a moment in when I was in middle school, someone, uh, a, a group of kids actually followed us home um, and told us to go back where we come, where we came from. So instead of actually going home, we 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 decided to like stop somewhere else, and for like a week, we weren't like allowed to go to school because it was like a safety concern. Um, and that's how I started with video editing. I made a video about Muslims and our culture, um, and I played it on the school news. And that's like one of my first ways learning about the importance of storytelling. Um, and it was so cool to know that people actually wanted to hear my story, and that it actually helped people be more comfortable with having Muslim um, people in the school. So that's a bit of my story. That is really big of you to have made that educational material for someone who made it so you couldn't go to school for a week. Um, but also really powerful storytelling. Thank you for sharing that. Ariana, how about you? Do you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, so I guess a big reason why I always have had trouble and like have been scared to reach out to people and connect with people is the way that I've kind of grown up in kind of a broken family structure. And so I think it was during the 2008 recession around 2012 or so, my mom had lost her house and she lost her job. And so for about a year, she was very depressed and she's always dealt with alcoholism. And so there was about like a year in our lives where it was just kind of me and my sister taking care of ourselves. And I just remember one night we went to some random building, which I now know was a homeless shelter. And um, we had like cried and my mom, um, was like, I could tell that she was sad that we were in that position. And it was just always a lot of drama going through school. And I didn't want people to know what was going on. And so I kind of secluded myself around that age. And eventually we moved in with our grandma, who is the one that passed away in November. And um, we lived with her for about a year, but she was bipolar and had hoarding issues. And that was around the time where I would always go to the library and learn to kind of develop a love for books and stories. And I think that's also why I really enjoy kind of stories now and like the power that they can hold um, and then eventually my mom like would work she, she worked really hard to take care of us and so we eventually moved into a, um, apartments of our own and my mom um, worked as a housekeeper and she's now a bus driver and so she's worked very hard to kind of pick us back up and I am now kind of at school at Boulder and have learned the importance of stories and how understanding your story and your history is very important and um, a big part of who we are as people. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for sharing your stories and for sharing about your storytelling. Thank you for listening to us and tell our story. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's Ariana Proctor and Yusura Ali. They're co-owners of Mama Bird Interviews. It helps people document their stories and aims to economically empower the interviewers. So far, all women of color. We spoke in March. When we come back, a unique father and son connection in the wilds of Colorado. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Businesses are opening up. The state is opening up. And so is the art scene. Movie theaters, museum exhibits, music festivals, performers taking to stages across the state. After a year stuck at home, you might want a night or weekend out. I'm Colorado Public Radio's arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo. Stay up to date on the rejuvenated art scene. Listen to CPR News or come to CPR.org. Get ready for an entertaining summer.
Today we're highlighting stories of family and connection. To the Mountain is a survival story. In Eric Rashke's latest novel, a father and son find themselves on a lonely peak, battling avalanches, cold, and coyotes. They're fighting to stay alive, to find each other, and to find themselves. The story is set in southern Colorado. Rashke grew up in the state. The Sangre de Cristos near his aunt's home in Durango made a particular impression on him and on this story. I spoke with him in February. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Even before your main characters, Marshall and Jace, wind up physically isolated in the wilderness, they're each experiencing intense loneliness. Marshall lives in a group home where he's bullied by the other kids and even some of the staff. Introduce us to Marshall. Who is he? Yeah, well, Marshall is... I couldn't have written Marshall without my my son, um, who is autistic. I guess as a writer, you know, you sort of begin with what you know best. And the last decade has been a lot of just trying to get him on his feet and into the world and independent. And it's really hard for him, too. So there's just a lot of emotions the last 10 years with him. And... Um, it seems like it would be kind of a, you know, <laughs> to channel that into a character and to make that a story. Um, but I also, I really just didn't want to write uh, a memoir, a father-son memoir. Um, I thought there's there's enough of those out there. And a lot of the autism parent stories just don't really appeal to me. There's, there's just very few that I actually really connect with. And um, so I really, I really just decided I wanted to I wanted to write more of a universal uh, story of dis- disability and the struggle between a parent and a, and a child. But basically it came down to Isaac and Abraham and the father and son connection between them and the faith that you have. And I thought that was just a nice way. The faith that a parent has in their child and the, the faith that a child has in their parent. So that's where I was. So in some ways, there's this almost biblical story of this father, Jace, learning to have faith. In this case, faith in his son's own ability to survive. At the beginning of the story, Jace is already in the wilderness, leading a separate rescue mission for a climber that fell. He learns his son has gone missing nearby. He immediately sets out to find Marshall. Without giving too much of the story away, they both climb the peak of this mountain in southern Colorado separately in a huge snowstorm. It threatens both of their lives. What is it about Marshall's survival story in particular that drew you in and kept you writing? Well, so I sort of used a lot of that, the survival and the need to be away from the institution and being out in nature. And his father, his, who is on search and rescue, has taught him how to actually survive in nature. So when he is, when he goes, when he is stuck out in the middle of nature and he has to survive, his uh, he brings in these things. So he does understand how to survive. He does remember certain techniques, but then he also has this impetus of like, I don't want to be back in the institution. I want to be out in nature away from people. Right. Marshall is alone as he climbs this mountain. And like you're saying, he navigates brutal survival situations because his dad taught him wilderness first aid and how to avoid hypothermia. We find out he's a skilled outdoorsman, but he also gets himself into some of the sticky spots. And I'm thinking of the scene where he sees a sick coyote and Marshall goes out onto a frozen lake to taunt this coyote. And he's driven by what you describe as two beasts who live inside of Marshall, the panic and the fury. Tell me more about the panic and the fury. Yeah, that's a direct thing from my my son. Like, 
when you're when you have the inability to communicate like you want to it bubbles up so like for example he, my son had this doll that he would carry around all the time and, and and if he ever lost the doll or he dropped it somewhere and he couldn't find it he would go into a panic right and then and that panic would just sort of build up and build up but he couldn't express himself he couldn't be like i lost my doll it's over here like a lot of kids will cry and he'll get sort of get it through the tears but he couldn't do that so it just swells and builds and builds and builds and then and then when you try and calm them down, that was sort of the point where it switches to the fury. You you know, kids don't like to necessarily autistic kids that they're they get over they're they're very sensitive. So you touch them and you try and hold them like you would normal a normal child and hug them and calm them down, it only makes things worse. But then also like if you raise your voice, you know, all these things that sort of prickles, like it's little pokes on their brain, you know, and um and it just becomes too much and that turns that panic becomes anger. And I mean, we, we spent years working on it with it, but I, that's what I used to sort of see. There's these two sides. There's the first is the panic and then there's the fury. And so with Marshall, I tried to have this two sort of beasts living within him that he can't control, but he's aware of them. And my son, that was the thing. Like he can't really control them, but he's aware of them. And now when they come up, he can sort of, he knows sort of how to separate himself from what's making them grow. And I remember the day that we actually, he, he, he felt it coming up and he said, I'm going to go sit in another room. And like, you know, there's tears in my eyes because I was like, he's it's self-awareness and you're taking control of yourself. You're taking control of your brain and the way you think and the way you feel and stuff. So that's huge. And is that control part of why it was important to you to show Marshall both as this very skilled outdoorsman who knows how to keep himself alive out there? He knows what to do when he falls through a frozen lake to survive. But at the same time, he has to contend with panic and fury. I'm curious about what you were thinking about when you decided to juxtapose those things. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of repeating myself, but once again, it's sort of my son. Like, he's really good at certain things. Like, he's really smart and really perceptive and he picks up on things and he he learns things that he wants to learn like he he makes his music now and he picks it up because it's something he's really interested in but he still can't tie his shoes he still puts his shoes on the wrong feet you know he still puts his ear pods in the wrong ears and for class he's, he's always making these very simple mistakes and that there's a part in the book where he's walking up the hill with rocks in his arms and he's like, I'm tired. I can't walk anymore. And then his doll says to him, put the rocks down. That literally happened every time we went hiking. It wasn't just like one. It happened all the time. He'd come up and he'd be carrying a big thing of, you know, sticks. And he would be like, I'm tired. I'm like, because you're carrying, you know, 10 sticks in your arm. And he's like, yeah, but I don't want to put them down. And, you know, put them down. No. And then that's when you get into this fight. And you're like, I'm fighting with his child about he's tired, but he doesn't want to put down a you know, an armful of rocks. And so it was this, there's this thing with that I noticed as a father is it's really, it's fascinating is that he's really good with certain things. And then there's these other things that just you have no idea where they're coming from and they make no sense. And you're just like, whoa. And, and um, so in his mind, it does, you know, in his mind, it totally is. For me, it doesn't. And uh, so I wanted to sort of put that in the book that, that sort of, how there's this, he knows how to survive and he knows how to, you know, be in the woods and, and do all this stuff. But then on the other hand, he just, he's going to the top of the mountain. He doesn't need to go, you know? So 
not to spoil it, but you know, there, he makes these choices that are bad choices, but he also makes really smart choices, which is just in tune with my experience with my son. So, Do you and your son share the outdoors the same way Marshall and Jace do? Yeah, we do. I mean, we go hiking all the time because hiking is actually the, the one thing that um, I can do with him that is good exercise. And I can really get him just to sort of go all day long. And I want him to be healthy and fit and strong. I'm glad y'all share that. So I sent you some questions for your son. For privacy, we're not going to use his name. You asked him my questions and recorded that conversation. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Jace taught Marshall how to survive outside on a mountain in a huge snowstorm. Yes. What's something your dad has taught you? I do ride my bike. How to ride your bike? Okay. That's it? That's all? Yeah. That's the only thing I taught you? To always, um, to always make breakfast, probably. Make breakfast by yourself, yeah. You can get out of bed and get yourself ready for school all by yourself now, can't you? What is something you've taught your dad? The commands on the keyboard. What would you say your son has taught you? Wow, wow. Um, One of the things that I really love about him is that he's really happy. And I got really, really lucky that he's just a super happy kid. And he gets up in the morning and he's super happy and... And he goes to school and he doesn't give up and, and he knows he's aware of all the stuff that happens to him, but he's just happy. And I'm grumpy and cynical and frustrated, you know? (laughs) And then I'm like, what right do I have to be like that when he's not frustrated about him? Well, he is, but he's, he's happy, you know, and he's, he's encouraging and he's, you know, he's like, come on, dad, you know, like, and he's forgiving and patient and stuff, you know, so that's what I've learned from him, just sort of how to like, if he's happy, then I should sort of be happier about it, you know? Yeah. In your novel, the father, Jace, faces situations where there are seemingly no right answers. You've also had to make very tough decisions. Last fall, you and your son moved from Amsterdam to New Jersey so that he could go to a school that's better for him. Your wife and your other two kids are still in the Netherlands, and you're only able to see them for days at a time. You want your son to be able to live mostly independently when he's an adult, so tell me more about that decision to move across the world for your son's education. Um, It was just sort of those things where I made these decisions where I'm like, look, one of the things is, like I said, if I decided as a parent, look, his future is is set for him. He's going to be in a group home, or he's going to live with me. Then it would be so much easier. But there is a there is a percentage of parents that say, like, look, I want my child to be semi-independent. I want them to have a quality of life that they choose and that they they can live on their own. And they're not that the, if the whole world collapses around them, they can still stand, they can still survive. And I think as a parent, when you make that choice for your child, um, you run into so many hurdles, just constant roadblocks of like can he be educated and how far can you educate him and what kind of job can he have and what, you know, so I really just felt like, look, you know, I want him to be semi-independent and I want him not to have to depend on his brothers or on me or, you know, he probably will to some capacity for the rest of his life, but it will be minor. And so we moved out there to New Jersey and 
Um, and yeah, it was just, it was me and him, which I think was good in a way because I was really able just to stay on top of him. And we get up in the morning and I, now he, we're at a point now, which is a lot of work, but he gets up in the morning and he makes himself breakfast and he gets dressed and he takes a shower and he does all these things on his own. And then this existential weight as a father gets lifted off of me a little bit. Cause I'm like, okay, we're getting there. We're moving forward. And like I said, he's getting an education. So, so yeah, so the next steps, I mean, he stays at the school until he's 21 and he works with kids in the school that are also older too. They're his mentors. They, you know, they learn how to fold clothes. They learn how to do their laundry, but they also learn, you know, academic stuff too. So it's, yeah, fingers crossed. There, there are these people who are successful and, and they make the world a better place and they connect. And all those people, we just need more of that connection with each other. You and your son actually talked a little bit about his new school. What do you like about your new school? Um, there are a lot of t- teachers and they're n- nice to me. They're nice to you, yeah. They're really nice to you. What else do you like? Um, I have also really n- nice f- friends. You're making lots of friends, huh? Now, what's something you've learned at Celebrate the Children this year? What's something you've learned in school this year? About James Madison. James Madison, yeah. And why do you like James Madison? What's your favorite musical right now? Hamilton. Eric, earlier you mentioned a doll that your son played with. She makes an appearance as one of the most intriguing characters in this book. She's a Playmobil doll who talks with Marshall. She keeps him company, she encourages him, she scolds him, and motivates him and gives him advice. She's actually based on a Playmobil doll your son played with for years named Woody. I know you don't play with Woody that much anymore. What is Woody like? She is a good um, girl. And she says... And she says, listen to me. And do you listen to her? Yeah. Eric, who is Woody to you? Um, well, Woody represented an outlet for him to communicate. He can't communicate, you know, in person. Woody sort of, I would hear him often having conversations that we had had or that questions people had asked him earlier with Woody later on. So someone would ask him a question like, what's your favorite food? And then he would just sort of sit there and freeze. And, and you know, he, in his mind, there's all these things, what's your favorite food? And he's probably thinking a billion different things and comes out, he's like, uh, you know? And then later, I think you would use Woody to sort of rehearse the, the answer to the question. And then he would also, he had a lot of thoughts going through his head that he would often go up to people and he says these very strange things, you know, like, you know, this, the, the snow is green. What do you think about that? And people are like, what do you mean the snow is green? And I would know that the snow is green because people had just thrown out their Christmas trees and there would be, you know, needles all over and he would see it, but he was referencing that and nobody had any idea what he was talking about. So then he would go back with Woody and sort of rehearse that sort of conversation again and sort of break it apart so that he could actually translate it for, you know, sort of a, you know, an, what do you say, a neurotypical audience. Why did you include Woody, under the name Susie, into the mountain? Yeah, because I, like I said, I couldn't have written it without him. And I couldn't have modeled this character without him. 
and that doll was a part of his life for, you know, five, six years. And, and now he still has imaginary friends. But Woody and then Susie is such an integral part of who he was and how he thinks and the way his brain works that to sort of leave it out would feel almost disingenuous, you know, in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Another coping skill of Marshall's is he has a song that he sings that helps him focus. It's a K-pop song from 2012. It was wildly popular, Gangnam Style. That skill is something else that Marshall and your son have in common. Is there a song that helps you focus? Yeah. What is it? It's Cry Me a River. Yeah, who's that by? Justin Timberlake. And what else do you like to do to focus? Beatbox. So you wrote this character so closely based on your son. When you read him the story, were you nervous about what he would think or feel about that? Yes, I was absolutely nervous because, because yeah, and it, it's so close to him and it's who he is. I know that your son has told you after you read him the story that he does like the book. So what is it like now for the two of you to have this story out in the world that really is about y'all's relationship in a lot of ways? One of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have him with me as much as possible because um, I'm, I'm a fiction writer. I'm not an autism expert. I'm just his parent. I think any disability or anything, any, anything people have that need to speak, it, it should come from the personal experience. And, and I learn the most about how he thinks from people like Temple Grandin and, and those kind of books that are written by people who have autism who write about what it's like to have autism, that experience. And um, so I I was like, okay, you know what, he's 14. This is, this is good for him to sort of practice speaking and connecting with people and not have me do it, you know? I can be the writer, I can be the fiction, the, you know, and, and the novelist, and he can be the expert on it. Um, and uh, it's been nice. I mean, I, we're just slowly starting to get into it now. But the experiences we've had have been really wonderful, and he really loves it. You know, he's, he's super happy to do it. And he's, you know, he, it's, it's funny, too, because he, he is more um, charming than me. He's a, He smiles a lot, and he, he agrees with people. And and uh, so I, I, hope it, I hope it continues to work out that way, that we can both sort of be a buddy team on this, at least for this book. Now, before we go, I've got to ask, why did you set to the mountain in the Colorado outdoors? <laughs> That's really funny. Um, I grew up in Colorado, and I love Colorado. There's nowhere else in the world that makes me happier thinking of, like, climbing on a mountain in Colorado. Thank you, Eric, and thanks to your son also for sharing your experiences and the story. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Eric Rashke's novel, To the Mountain, is out now. Today's show is about family, connections, and empowerment. When artist Greg Deal of Peyton painted a 77-foot-tall mural of his daughter, Sage, on the side of a building in Colorado Springs, he was hoping to share a message. A message about the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous people in this country. His mural is called Take Back the Power. We spoke last July. Uh, hamu, new Greg Deal, mi nani, new kiriuri tikara.
Uh, my name is Greg Deal, and I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe. In the mural, his 14-year-old daughter wears a T-shirt from her favorite punk band, The Interrupters. A bright red handprint covers half her face. First and foremost, this was meant to be about the seemingly silent epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit with the red handprint. Um, But uh, uh, another aspect of this is the fact that I wanted to recognize the modern existence of Indigenous people with modern elements and the intersection of subcultures with being an Indigenous person, the duality of our existence. And so the T-shirt and the way she wears her hair and all these little small elements are meant to point in that direction as well. Murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women. But there's a lot that's not known because of inadequate data. A recent study by the Urban Indian Health Institute found that of the 5,700 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls reported in 2016, only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice database. When I was actually working on this particular piece, the mother of Sherry Barker, a young woman in Colorado Springs, a native woman who was born and raised in Colorado Springs, who was shot and killed four years ago in front of her six-year-old son, came to the mural while I was working and introduced herself. Um, I I found that to just be so incredibly overwhelming and just incredibly difficult to process in the reality of these things as it's hit Colorado Springs and what kind of effect that's had on the indigenous community here. And what conversations have you had with your daughter Sage about these issues as you painted this portrait of her? We've had very frank conversations. I mean, the conversations that happen in our household are, you know, um, oftentimes different than a lot of other families because we talk about history and we talk about um, our people. We talk about language and we talk about these statistics as just simply the reality of our existence, that we have to navigate these things, the dehumanization of indigenous people, which is really where I think a lot of this stuff stems from. So the, the, the concepts of stereotypes and mascots and, you know, things of that nature contribute to dehumanizing people. And in this specific case, uh, women and girls and uh, LGBTQ plus and that that effect is very true, that she has to understand and recognize that she's part of that statistic as she moves forward in her life to protect herself and as I move forward as her father and, uh, and of course, her mother as well to protect our children. And like you're saying, it's part of this idea that violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are contributing forces, like the ways that Native Americans are represented in media and pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if we're never really portrayed as humans, then it becomes difficult for people to look at us as human beings. And when you look at those statistics, and it's like 86% um, of these violent acts happening towards Indigenous uh, women and girls and LGBTQ are um, coming from outside of the community, from non-Native people. These are things that are vastly important. And so representation matters. The mural of Deal's daughter is on the side of an old brick office building in Colorado Springs. One thing that I was really attracted to about doing this piece and doing it as big as it is, is um, this idea of representation, that there might be uh, a child that sees this and recognizes, you know, the face or recognizes an aspect of it of seeing themselves or maybe, you know, 
a young person sees me doing it and maybe I look like their dad. You know, there's this this level of representation that traditionally does not exist in public spaces is a, is a really empowering thing for these marginalized communities where representation is either completely false or just doesn't exist at all. And so participating on that level, having a piece of representation in a space that is traditionally Southern youth land, I think is incredibly empowering and important because, uh, like I said before, you know, representation matters. That's Greg Deal, a Pyramid Lake Paiute artist and activist. He lives in Peyton, Colorado. We spoke last July. The mural of his daughter Sage is called Take Back the Power. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.